One more just fast announcement while we um, look at some scripture. Um, September the 20th, um, the same people that visited us in January from the um, Churches of Christ and Christian Union um, are going to come here to give um, Dan Knust and me uh, our ordination certificates, having transferred our credentials to that denomination, and at the same time we'll give a, a license um, to preach, which is the initial step uh, towards ordination. They will present that um, to Tanner. Now, Tanner has a Zoom meeting interview with them. Where is he? Does he know about that? <laughs> well, they told me on the phone the other day, and I thought, I never asked him. Maybe They say they're trying to get it set up. So it depends on how the Zoom meeting goes, um, whether he gets a license to preach or not. They could turn him down, you know, we'll have him clean his desk out and all that. But anyway, um, that's going to be the 20th of, of um, September. And I appreciate them doing that because we were going to have to fly back there um, and attend a, a service and an ordination ceremony back there. And they felt like, um, you know, with the distance and their gratitude to us for becoming a part of them, they would come out here. So that um, saves us a trip. All right. Last week we started looking at the doctrine of grace. I want to just say this to you. Um, grace is such a massive doctrine in Scripture. The more you think about it, the more you read about it, the more you just read Scripture and see it come off of the pages, it is probably ridiculous to try to take it on as a subject. It, it's too massive. Um, and so I'm a little bit intimidated by it in trying to accurately give us the doctrine of grace. If there's anything, though, that I hope is accomplished when we get through several Sundays of looking at the grace of God. I hope we are deeply aware of how unspeakably good God is to us. All He does to bring us to salvation, to heaven ultimately, how He takes the initiative in all of that and how much of the load, if you want to call it, he, he carries with us so that not only are we deeply grateful to God for His wonderful grace, but we are also impressed with how deep our obligation is to God to walk in that grace and how much we can't why we can't even have the thought enter our minds that God can be blamed if we don't make it to heaven. 
He's done absolutely everything He can do to carry you and I to heaven. He's for us more than we have any idea. So, maybe if we come to a deeper recognition of that, that's, that's an accomplishment. I want to look at today, um, in a little more detail, some of the things I just mentioned last week in way of uh, introduction about grace. The definition of grace that I want to always have us settled on is often it is partial. It's a partial definition. We hear unmerited, undeserving favor from God. Of course, that is a huge portion of God's grace. But grace has often been twisted by using only that definition. And it has, it has slid over into cancellation of obligation rather than enablement to fulfill obligation. That's a huge mistake. It is, however, very popular. I am in the minority. I don't mind admitting it. Grace is every bit as much the empowering and strengthening and enabling to keep the law of God and to fulfill the righteousness of the law through grace. We hear the mistake uttered often by these words, especially on the part of Christians who are don't walk too straight with God. Well, we're not under law, we're under grace. What is implied there? That God's unmerited favor just covers all kinds of disobedience, failure to walk in light, rejection of God's laws, failure to grow in grace, just doing my own rebellious thing, picking and choosing what God tells me whether I want to do it or not. Well, thankfully we're all under grace. Listen, the grace of God that is starts out as unmerited favor goes beyond that step and gives me everything I need to obey Him. It gives me the ability and the strength to obey Him. It gives me, He makes no commandments to me that He doesn't also supply the grace to do them. I can there by grace. Therefore, I can walk not sinning against the Lord. And the idea that grace kind of just blurs God's vision. He puts grace glasses on and looks at us. And yeah, we disobey Him and we don't do what we ought to do, but bless God, we're under grace for our law. Don't buy that. The very grace of God enabling me to keep His commandments is, what, is why I will be so accountable at Judgment Day for what I've done with that. I don't have to sin, walk away from God, disobey Him, rebel against Him. I don't have to because He's given me the grace not to. 
Therefore, if I don't make the proper use of that grace, I'm accountable. I'll answer. Now there are, here's a basic thought I want to give you. Grace is, for want of a better word, grace is a continuum. It's continual. Grace has what are called preliminary states. And we, a subtitle under that is prevenient grace. But then prevenient grace carries me and becomes saving grace. And saving grace for the believer becomes then keeping grace, enlightening grace, strengthening grace, nourishing, growing grace, further revealing grace. And if I walk in that grace as a believer, regardless really, and I'm not saying doctrine is unimportant, but regardless of doctrine, if we just walk with Jesus, He will lead us to recognize that as a believer, we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our own little Pentecost, where our hearts, as Peter said, were purified by faith from the inner civil war and the double impulse and the double-mindedness that every single Christian, I don't care, from Catholic to Baptist to whoever, testifies down through history to discovering a deeper need, becoming aware of it, realizing how it hinders me, and saving, keeping illuminating, revealing grace leads me to sanctifying grace. And that continues on as keeping and instructing and warning and helping grace until finally there is the amazing grace of the hymn that will lead me home as that I think it's the third verse, which we'll sing today, says. So grace is not just some single focus. Grace carries me from start to finish. All I have to do is obey it, accept it, walk in it. The very first, then, the very first impulses. There's a lot of times when I've asked people here, uh, how did you get to, what made you come to our church, whatever. Um, maybe someone invited them, you know, whatever. But a lot of times people have said, you know, I just drove by here. I would drive by here every day or whatever. And a thought, you know, just kind of nagged at me. Why don't you visit there sometime? As early, as dim as faint as that is, it came completely from God. I didn't originate it. None of us originated it. None of us started out seeking God. We don't seek God. He seeks us first. And so even the hint of starting to think about, you know what a great time that God always down through I've noticed this through my pastoring children. People sometimes who are just hellions. 
but they have their first child and the sobering reality of that little life and the responsibility sinks in on them and you'd be surprised the number of people who say we thought well maybe we better send them to Sunday school we better send them to VBS or whatever where'd they get that idea God put it there what does he expect then respond to it sad fact is most of God's implanted impulses promptings are stifled we stifle them yeah we put it off we you know whatever the good news is this wonderful news of grace you can stifle it but you can't silence it he just keeps coming back and you can stifle it and you can kind of put it out of your mind and he may let it go for a while but you come back and he'll put ideas in your heart and mind again and promptings maybe some tragedy comes into your life and it renews all of that impulse man you know i i I need something in my life or he sends people across your path that have something that you don't have a poise in difficulty a purpose in life a, a light in their heart and on their face and a direction in their walk and God, who, how, how'd you cross paths? God did it. God did it. And he draws and calls and he just keeps working, keeps working, keeps working. And all he has to do, I want you to think about this, all he has to do to assure my eternity in hell is just stop. Just not put an impulse in your heart. Just not water and fertilize that inclination. Just stop. And we're done. Done. I, Jesus said, sobering words, no man That includes, I think, all of us. No man can come to the Father unless he be drawn. No man, he said, can come to me unless my Father draws him through the Holy Spirit. All God has to do is just not draw us, and we're cooked. There's an old hymn we never sing anymore. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And it uses the words of that invitational hymn. Uses the words of Agrippa, whom Paul preached before. And Agrippa said, almost, 
almost you persuade me to become a Christian. And then he says to Paul, some more convenient time I'll call. There's the, the almost persuaded. That's the title of the hymn. Almost persuaded is God's work on my heart. Some more convenient time, Paul, I'll have you come back and talk to me some more about this, but not right now. That's the stifling of what God tried to kindle in his heart. And there is no record that Paul ever talked to him again. And he was replaced not long after that as the governor by Festus or Felix or somebody. And that old invitational hymn brought the point up. If the Holy Spirit's tugging at my heart and has kind of invaded my life in an unusual way, and I've been thinking about the things of God and, and I'm, I'm drawn to, to God along with a growing dissatisfaction with what I've got going on in my life, maybe God knows something I don't know. He knows when my life's going to end. I don't. If He is making a bid for my soul, better pay attention to it. Does that make any sense? That's God's grace trying to reach me, trying to get a hold of me. And there are what we call preliminary stages of grace. And let me just do my best to try to make this clear. Don't know how far I'll get. But the first thing is called um, the gospel call. The gospel call. The thought invades my mind, whether it's through being raised in a Christian family or in a country where you know the neighbors take me to VBS and I first hear about Jesus. Or I'm not raised in church at all. I don't go to VBS. I don't, but somehow God gets His call to me. Psalm 50, it says, from the rising of the sun until it's going down, He calls the earth. That's everybody. God sends out His drawing influence and calls us. There is one of the, I'm not going to get off the subject too far here, but one of the proofs, they say, call them that, of the existence of God is the universal morality of every person. You can find, they'll stumble across some jungle uh, tribe that to everyone's knowledge has never touched society or whatever. Never no contact. They have a primitive, rude, faint, dim, but still they have a standard of right and wrong. They have ways that peculiarly often involve killing an animal, some kind of sacrifice, some kind of payment. 
or even some kind of suffering you inflict on yourself or you have the tribe inflict on you for doing something bad, how do you even know it's bad? What makes you aware of the concept of good versus evil? It's God. And the fact that, it, that that is universal around the globe to highly civilized societies and those who've had no contact at all, they all share that basic moral sense of right and wrong is used as a proof that there's a God. And God instills that in our hearts. He calls us the first, the first act of God after Adam and Eve sinned was He came to them. They didn't come to Him. They sewed fig leaf coverings and headed for the brush. They ran from Him. He chased them. He's still doing that. He's still doing that. He came into the garden and he called out to them. And what did he say? Where are you? Where are you? And the second question was, what did you do? If you're looking for kind, good, faithful, loving, look to God. If you're looking for someone that will stir up your nest and poke you where you don't want to get poked and will not give you trigger warnings, look to God. There's nobody as straightforward, blunt as God. That's what we love about Him. He's the God of all truth. Not afraid to say it. So there is the gospel call. Then there are what we call there is awakening. After the call reaches us, the dim drawing to something bigger than us and a sense of right and wrong and a sense of some um, evaluation of our own acts. We ponder, we look back on, we think, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. Where does that come from? It comes from God. And so there's an awakening. An awakening, so the grace of God that gives us a call and begins to draw us also begins to operate through His Spirit on awakening us. And awakening is the opening of our hearts to a consciousness that I need God, that I'm lost, that I'm, I'm not right. Something's wrong with my life. That's the second awakening. The Word of God, preached Word of God, testimonies from other Christians, all those things are used by God to wake us up. I need something more than I have. Then the third thing is conviction. Conviction is a deepening of awakening. So awakening grace leads me to convicting grace where the burden on my heart and the sense of wrongness and shame and guilt and discomfort is 
increased. I've told you this before. I think you understand. I pray. I pray that God would make people miserable. I like to see people spiritually um, so sick they're green around the corners of the mouth. You ever seen somebody that's so sick to their stomach that it's kind of green? That's great if you're a preacher. It means people are sick of their lives, sick of their direction, sick of the decisions they're making, sick of the whole mess. That, listen, God's pretty open and transparent, and we can see what He's up to. If He just makes our way smooth as glass and everything's just great, who's going to repent? Who's going to turn away from something that's great? So He comes down and makes you absolutely miserable. He does it on purpose. It's a wonderful thing. Honestly, it's the best thing that ever can happen to us is to get sick of the way we're going. That gives us an incentive to quit, to seek God. So conviction deepens on my heart. There are, there are different kinds of conviction, too, and, there, and people can stifle conviction. In this sense, I think a lot of times, in this, especially in this um, sugary, syrupy, sick, sickening day we're in, from most preachers and churches, everything's about softening the blow. Um, you know, putting a lot of cotton around the, the end of the arrowhead that God wants to sink into our hearts. David said, your arrows have sunk deep into my heart. That's, that's conviction, and we need that. Without that, we'll never move to repenting grace. If we don't have repenting grace, we'll not end up with believing grace, which is saving grace. And we can short-circuit everything the Holy Spirit is trying to do by doing our best to make people feel good about themselves. We don't want anybody to feel bad. Listen, the most gracious thing God can do is make me feel like the publican, the tax collector who Jesus spoke of, who prayed in the temple. And he had such shame and grief and sorrow for his sins that he said he couldn't even lift his eyes up to God. So he hung his head and he just beat on his chest like this and repeated over and over God, be merciful to me, the, not a. I know all of our versions say a. It's the. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What's he saying? Lord, I feel like I'm the worst one there is. Good. Good. Until we hit that point, if we do make some feeble reach out to God, we'll renege on it within 24 hours. We'll quit. 
I can't tell you the number of times at, you know, around the campfire in the youth group, you know, at somebody's backyard on Sunday nights, uh, you know, after church, you you sing this dorky little song we used to have, teenager, or you know, whatever. Do you need a friend like Jesus? <laughs> and you sit there, and you know, and you're, you're looking around, and and finally you feel a little bit bad, so you raise your hand, and the the leader counts you. He asks Jesus into his heart for the ninety fifth time. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Usually by about nine thirty Monday morning, when I got back in the locker room. Um, it was long gone because I wasn't sick. Preachers and I, I, I knew a great preacher who one time made this statement and he was a college president. In fact, he was a pres- uh, president of Asbury College and they had um, a great altar service in a chapel and a lot of kids came and knelt at the altar and their friends you know came up to pray with them and he realized something that was going on he put a stop to it he got up and he told everybody there that was supposedly praying with and kind of helping people that were at the altar praying he said you stop comforting those whom the holy spirit is condemning you quit comforting them. Don't tell them they're okay. Don't tell them that they're not that bad. If the Holy Spirit's telling them, yes, you are. You understand me? God's work of jarring me loose from my grip on sin and my own self-will has to have its effect or will return to it by the next day conviction and then something that's called in theology effectual calling it's that the call of God elicits a response from me that my heart agrees with God really I vote with God I vote that what he's been telling me is not too harsh. It's not unfair. It's the truth. It's the whole truth. James talked about people who profess to be Christians but sin, disobey God, don't act like it. He said this, Glory not and lie not against the truth. The tendency of the fallen human heart is to lie against the truth. We're always, always trying to airbrush our own picture. And when the Holy Spirit, who knows nothing about airbrushing anything out, shows me and takes me by the back of the neck and says, look at that picture. That's what I see when I look at your heart. Now you stop the self-airbrushing, he says, and you take a hard look at what I see. What that conviction is designed to trigger is a vote in favor of what God says he sees. Lord, I agree. I agree. 
How many of us go to the doctor? Well, the doctor says I got this, but I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Well, they're fallible. They might be wrong, but God's not. And so when we hear from God, here's the diagnosis. This is what you're really like way down deep. Oh, no, no, no. That's stifling God's grace. He's trying to show me the depths of my need. But why does he do that? Listen. God has never lost a case ever. Anybody that signed the surgery form and committed themselves into his hands was cured. He didn't lose cases. So I can trust him. If he's given me the bad news, it isn't going to be bad news forever. It's never bad news. What's the word gospel mean? Good news. It's only good news. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, so right. He said the gospel has to be bad news before it's good news. But that's how God brings us. We see, oh my goodness, I'm, a, I'm hopeless. He says, yeah, on your own. But there's nothing who, too hard for me. I can take your lying, cursing tongue and your wicked life and I can turn it around in 30, 40 years? No. He said, I can change it like that. And he does. Now, God's call to me assumes free, free will. It assumes what we call volition, the power to choose. God will influence me. He'll start to work in my heart. He's the one that puts ideas in my head. He's the one that draw, draws me. But listen, He never, ever, ever forces, compels me to say yes. It's only grace of all things that gives me the ability to choose. So with the, get this, let this sink in. With the ability to choose, the power to choose that comes to my heart, only through grace, I can choose to stifle grace. But he, God saves nobody against their will or without their will. He doesn't sneak up on my blind side and save me overnight. He doesn't do that. He'll never do that. He wants voluntary obedience, love, faithfulness. So it assumes that I have the power to choose. I can, I may stifle God's voice for a long time. But finally, because of its persistence, open up. It may be, it literally it could be 50 years that you can stall God off, procrastinate, and His voice will grow somewhat dimmer. Then it'll, it'll kind of come back. That's how faithful He is to just keep talking to us. But at some point, I have to choose. I'm going to listen. I'm going to agree. And I want to make this abundantly clear. Once I respond to God's call, and become converted. I'm jumping ahead a, a bit of myself. I can still, I still have full power to exercise my will 
to walk away from that decision that I made. Do not buy the absolute, utter lie, oddball lie, that I have a free will and can say no, can say no, can say no, and once I say yes, I can't ever take it back. Somehow I lost my free will. Now I can just go sin, do whatever. I'm still okay. That's a lie. That's all it is. It's a lie. It came straight from the devil. And the first time he ever told it was in the garden to Eve. He said, sin won't separate you from God. Well, it did. So it's a lie. I retain the ability to choose to turn back always. Otherwise, now I have to quit, and then we've got to sing a song. And so, Barnabas was sent to Antioch after the gospel broke out there, and there was a revival. A lot of Gentiles, pagans, turned to God. And what did Barnabas do? They sent him down there. And he said he exhorted them all the time that with purpose of heart, they would continue in the grace of God. Now, if I can choose to follow the grace of God and get saved and then somehow lose the freedom to choose, why God send Barnabas down there to plead with them, don't turn back, keep moving, keep walking forward, keep obeying God, don't fall back. Jesus said in John 8, Great multitude believed in him. It says they believed in him, and he knew it. And he specifically addressed those people, and what did he say to them? He said, you have believed. If you continue in my word, then you will be, some newer versions say, really or indeed my disciples. Okay. Grace then is designed to carry me from the first dawning of moral light clear to heaven at any place in that whole process. I can say no. Or I can keep saying yes. Well, I have to quit. We'll try to pick up where we left off today next week. Let's have a quick word of prayer and then we'll sing our hymn, Amazing Grace. Father in heaven, I really pray that we would understand how just unspeakably good you are to us. You pave the way. You carry us. You do everything you possibly can do to enable us to trust you, to walk with you, and to finally make it to heaven. Lord, at the end, there isn't any being that will be more blameless than you. Help us get that into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.